Well, good morning again. My name is Robbie. Um, welcome again to Hillside. If you are joining us for the first time or haven't been with us for a little while, we are in the third week of a series we're doing in the Lord's Prayer that we've de- uh, titled the Disciples' Prayer. And in this prayer, coming out of Matthew chapter 6, if you wanted to turn in your Bibles there, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 today. But in this prayer, Coming out of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, about prayer, but this prayer is actually a part of a larger section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, which happens from Matthew chapter 5 till Matthew chapter 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to be aware of this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to people who are following him, and he's teaching his disciples what their lives are going to look like when they follow him. Um, in a way, you could call it sort of the Sermon on the Mount could sort of just be titled the Disciples Playbook. If you want to know what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, then here's your playbook. And I know I've said this a lot over the last uh, the course of the last almost two years uh, that my family has been here. But I think that it's always important for us to set this one thing as our base as we go into the Scriptures. So if I've said it too many times, I'm sorry, I'll probably say it the rest of my life, but salvation, meaning being forgiven of our sins and having the right to be called children of God, it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is how you come to saving faith in Christ. And um, our relationship with God or our being called disciples of Jesus is provided for us through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we attain new life in Christ through faith. And the only reason that I say this is I need us to understand that we are not saved by our works. I know that we've probably heard that before. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says that our righteousness are like filthy rags, that they're like polluted garments, meaning this, that even on our best days, even when we are at our best behavior, our righteousness or our good works are not enough to make us righteous before God. And so there's nothing in our works that give us salvation. And that's important for us to understand. And I think it's important for us to understand that because as we study the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, as we're calling it, or as we study the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that I am never saying that when the disciple prays something the correct way, then he's saved. Or the Lord's Prayer is not a system, it's not a law. That I'm not trying to teach you that if you do this right, then you will be a disciple of Christ. You are a disciple of Christ by your faith. But if you are a follower of Christ, here are some patterns that Jesus has taught us to live by. Jesus is teaching us in this section how to pray. When you're in relationship with God, this is how you will approach God. This, The Lord's Prayer isn't about repeating a prayer. It's about a pattern of the disciple. How does the disciple, how does someone who is saved by grace through faith pray? And as we talked about in the previous weeks, the last couple of weeks, 
Um, we have to begin this way. We have to begin with the foundational awareness of who God is. So the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father. God is our Dad. God is our Abba Father. As followers of Christ, we have the intimacy of a father-daughter relationship or a father-son relationship. And this reality is the distinctive ground of all Christian prayer. Who am I going to in prayer? It's God my Father. And from this relational foundational awareness flows the foundational petition. It's what we talked about last week. And that petition is this. He's our Father. That's our foundational awareness. And hallowed be your name is what we desire for Him. It's what we desire out of our lives. We want God's name to be hallowed. So ideal prayer is first Godward. When we're praying, it is first Godward for God's glory. And then secondly, when we pray, Prayer turns to our human needs. And with all of this in mind, today we're going to work our way through the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And so if you were with us in the following or in the previous weeks, you know I just did four words. Today I'm going to do more than four words at a time. We're doing the second and the third petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And so the first petition is that God's name would be hallowed. And then the second and third petitions come for us. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Look at what it says. It says, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we get started this morning, I want us to notice that these two petitions, your kingdom come and your will be done, extend the upward rush of prayer towards God. It's important for us to see that your kingdom come, petition number two, and your will be done, petition number three, are enlargements of hallowed be your name, which is the first request we make. So when we desire for God's name to be hallowed as our Father, then that includes prayer that His kingdom will come and that His will will be done. And so right from the outset this morning, what Jesus is telling His disciples, who if you're a follower of Christ, you're one of Christ's disciples, He's saying that prayer for the kingdom is to be part of the pattern of our lives. Prayer for God's kingdom should be a part of the pattern of our lives. These two petitions ask for the Lord's rule over our lives and the entire created order to be fully manifested. These petitions are the longing of a disciple. They are the longing of kingdom citizens, the longing that the kingship of our king might be honored and glorified and that the whole earth might submit to his rule. Now, I, I have to say personally, and I think it's probably true across the board in churches, that no prayer is probably more abused or more misunderstood than these words right here. Lots of people pray this petition every single week without even thinking about it. Lots of us have mindlessly said, God, your kingdom come and your will be done. And so today, I want us to carefully consider what Jesus is saying. I think in order for us to understand what Jesus is teaching his disciples in these two petitions, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done, then we need to ask a couple of questions. And the, the first one is this. What does Jesus mean by God's kingdom and God's will? What does Jesus mean when he says, God, your kingdom come and your will be done? And so the first word that I think that we need to understand this morning is this word kingdom. 
And we use it a lot in church. The Greek word for the word for kingdom actually occurs 162 times in the New Testament. And so clearly it is an important biblical term or theme. Jesus was constantly referring to the kingdom of God. And I know that we use the word kingdom here a lot. And so maybe we're curious, what does that mean? But what did Jesus mean when he said to pray for God's kingdom to come? What did Jesus mean by that? Kingdom is one of those areas in which very a lot of well-meaning Christians can get our theology sideways. Over the history of the church, there have been people that have believed that God's kingdom only refers to the second coming of Christ. It's in the future. There are also people in the church that believe that God's kingdom refers uh, only to social action and nothing else. Meaning this, we bring God's kingdom to earth when we act like Jesus, when we give people water or food or whatever. That's the kingdom of God. And so in the, we have to ask this question, is God's kingdom in the future? Is God's kingdom happening presently? Did God's kingdom happen in the past? What is Jesus praying for? It's important for us to understand when we pray, your kingdom come, what we are actually doing is we are praying for what is presently a reality, God's kingdom, and what will happen in fullness in the future. So perhaps the most important thing for us to understand is this, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. Are you confused yet? That's hard. It's already here in the present And it is coming in fullness in the future. And I understand that's confusing, so I'd like to try and make sense of it this morning. First, I want to start with, we're going to talk about past, present, and future. First, I want to start with the past. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are not looking ahead completely. As believers, we have to continually recognize that God's authority and kingship is in the past, too. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're not suggesting in any way that God has not been or is not presently the sovereign king over creation. Look at Psalm 24 verse 1. It says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So hear this very clearly. God is already king. God is the creator of all things, and when we pray your kingdom come, we are not asking for a totally new kingdom or a totally new creation. What we're asking for is a new and unique manifestation of God's kingdom now and in the future. We are asking for God to fully redeem his creation. If you think about the Garden of Eden before there was sin, God had given us a perfect kingdom. Sin ruined that. Satan is doing his best now to destroy the goodness of God's kingdom. And that is why God sent his son, Jesus. And so let's move into the present. When Jesus came to earth, he brought the kingdom of God in his own person. God, the king, was with us. And when he he began his public ministry, Jesus, the very first words from his mouth after reading from Isaiah, were these words from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
And so Jesus came and he said these things about himself, right? He said that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus ushered in God's kingdom in a new way. And as children of God, if you were a follower of God, then we are now kingdom citizens. Look at what Colossians chapter 1.13 says. It says that believers or the followers of God have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so the question is this, how is the kingdom of God here presently? How is the kingdom of God here? The kingdom of God has representatives presently in those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you were a follower of Jesus, then you have been transferred into the kingdom of God. And so you are a representative on earth of God's kingdom. Think of the church this way. Uh, Those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we can think of ourselves as kind of an embassy of the kingdom of God. And you, you probably know this, but an embassy is a national outpost situated in a foreign land, right? And so the embassy, while it wants to dwell peacefully in the foreign land that it's in, it exists to advance the interests of another country. And so, too, when we think about the kingdom of God being here presently, the church, God's people, are dwelling on earth in various nations around the world, and we exist to advance the interests of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And so the church is the place where you would expect to see the values and the rules of the kingdom honored and upheld. The kingdom of God is the heavenly world breaking into our earthly existence. The church is the outpost of heaven on earth. I think it's really important for us at this point to be very clear with what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is here, when he says that the church is a representation of the kingdom of God. We need to know that we as disciples of Christ, we don't bring about the kingdom of God. Jesus does that. We don't bring about the kingdom of God by our elections or our humanitarian efforts or our environmental stewardship. Kingdom values should infiltrate our politics and our communities, definitely, and you should recycle. (laughs) But but the kingdom of God, and this is really important because we get screwed up on this, the kingdom of God does not advance when trees are planted or unemployment is lowered or elections go one way or another. Those are important things, but the kingdom comes when and where the king is known. The kingdom is present today when Jesus is loved and worshipped and believed in. The kingdom is present today when Jesus is loved and worshipped and believed upon. The present kingdom of God is seen in the worshipping church that goes and makes disciples of all nations. That is where the kingdom of God is in our midst, in the midst of us presently. And so God has always been sovereign king over creation. The kingdom of God is presently seen in the worshiping church. It is the best way to see the kingdom of God. And then the kingdom of God is also coming in its fullness in the future. So we talked about past, we've talked about present, and let's talk about the future. And this is very important. We have not and we cannot see or experience the full measure of the kingdom of God yet. Because of sin and death. 
God is the king already. His kingdom was made manifest in Jesus Christ, and it is present today when Jesus is loved and worshipped and believed in, and his reign is also coming in its fullness in the future. So in one sense, Jesus is the king in our lives and in the church already, right? But in another sense, he needs to come and become king over all. And so the kingdom of God also refers to the age that's to come. This event happens at the second advent of Christ when he returns and he judges the world and he sets up his eternal kingdom. Look at what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34. He said this, When the Son of Man, which is Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is referring to the kingdom that is coming when he returns. It's the age to come, the heavenly reward. This really is our ultimate hope as believers. The kingdom of God is coming, and when it does, the angels will sing, like Revelation eleven fifteen. the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What is it that we have to look forward to? Maybe you're like, I'm not so sure about this kingdom thing. What is our ultimate hope? Well, look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. They say this. This is the kingdom of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You have to hear me on this. The future kingdom is glorious. It's our ultimate hope. Jesus is talking about today in the church, and Jesus is talking about the fullness of God's kingdom when he returns in the future, when he says, pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Jesus then says, when you pray, he says, pray your kingdom come. And then he says, pray God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says God's will? What is the will of God? Well, God's will, it's important for us to know that in Scripture, there are actually two separate aspects of God's will. And the way that we can think of it is this way. There are two sides to the same coin. It's not two different wills, it's two sides to the same coin. And so the two aspects of God's will that we can see in Scripture are what we would call God's will of decree and God's will of desire. Well, what is God's decreed will? Think of it this way, God's decreed will is God's sovereign rule over all things. It's what he determined in eternity past. That is God's decreed will. So everything that comes to pass is according to the will of God, and nothing comes to pass except as it conforms to the will of God. Here's one passage for you to look at to help you understand. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. It says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. 
Lord, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that God has willed it. He's ordained it. He knows it. It was set in eternity past. You cannot lose a hair from your head without God being aware of it. Some of you who are bald are like, man, God thinks of me a lot. Or not very much anymore. But, uh, But God's will was decreed. He set it in eternity past. Not even a sparrow can die that God doesn't know about. The point is this, according to Scripture, God's decreed will cannot be thwarted. It is already fixed from eternity past. He has willed it, and He knows the outcome. But we can also think of God's will in Scripture as His will of desire, okay? Or maybe better stated, it is what He commands of us and wants from us as we follow Him. His will for our lives is what He desires for us to follow. For reference, look with me at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you look at 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, it says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the what? Will of God abides forever. One more passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, it says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So what is God's will of desire? According to these passages, the will of God is obedience to God's commands and walking in His ways. It's God's desired will for our lives. Doing the will of God means that we say no to the desires of our flesh. And in this sense, we can submit to the will of God or not submit to the will of God. And so there is a fixed will of God, what God has decreed in the past, and then there's this desired will or our obedience to God's will for our lives. The difference between heaven and earth is not that God is not sovereign over earth, but He is over heaven. The difference is that every command is fulfilled with cheerful and full obedience in heaven, where that is not true here on earth. And so the point is this, when Jesus says, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is saying, when you pray that way, you are saying you are praying for God's desired will. You're praying that God would be obeyed in your own life. When you pray this way, you are praying about the obedience of all the people to God's commands. What we are saying is this, may your commandments be done, God, and all that you desire for your creation be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And it's important for us to know this when we pray, because I think that many of us struggle with understanding God's will for our lives, right? We need to understand this. We constantly want to know, what does God want from me? And we have to understand this, God's will is not written in the sky. It is recorded in the pages of the Bible that you and I read and we meditate and we study. 
And God's desired will for his people is obedience to him because he knows that is what's best for you. So when Jesus says, pray that God's will would be done, he is saying, pray for your desire and your ability to obey God on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we've just spent the majority of our time this morning talking about what the kingdom of God is, both presently and in the future, and what, God, what it means for God's will to be done. And Jesus here is pointing us to the reality that God's kingdom is God's reign and God's rule. His kingdom is his redemptive presence coming down from heaven to earth, and his will is for us to cheerfully obey on earth as it is in heaven, because he knows that's what's best for us. And Jesus is calling us as his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come, both now and in the future, and God's will to be done in our lives and in the lives of other people. Jesus is saying, when you pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, here's what you're praying for. You are asking God for the king to be known and worshipped and loved and believed in. You are asking God for his kingdom to advance and not for your own kingdom to advance. You're asking God for his commandments to be obeyed promptly, gladly, and sincerely on earth just as it is in heaven. You are asking Christ to reign in, a, in human hearts across the earth because that is what is most important. You're asking for the redemptive presence of God to be known and felt here and now on earth as it is in heaven, and you are asking for the reign of heaven to be felt here on earth. What we're doing is we're asking God to do this first in our own lives, and then we're saying, God, do it in the world. The Lord's Prayer is a cry of Jesus' disciples saying this, establish your reign here in me and in the world, in my life and on this earth. And I wonder how many of us honestly want to pray that prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Like I said at the beginning of all of the sections of the Lord's Prayer, this one's the hardest. I I personally find this to be the most difficult. And maybe this is too vulnerable, but maybe you can relate. This is the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer for me to honestly pray. I know that God's kingdom and God's will should be done. I know that in my head. But I'm scared to pray this prayer sometimes. And maybe you can relate. Because what if God's kingdom and God's will are not what I want? This week as I was actually just in my personal devotion time, I ran across this passage in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 34. And maybe you guys remember it, but Jesus and his disciples are really focused on the kingdom. And his disciples are really focused on the kingdom. Here's the thing, though. They're not concerned with honoring the king or the success of God's kingdom. The disciples are actually just really obsessed with their place in God's kingdom. Because for them, the kingdom was about personal power, it was about prominence, it was about position. Here's the passage, it goes like this. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. This is the disciples with Jesus. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, 
and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So as they're walking, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus said this to his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I find this passage so fascinating in light of what we're studying. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because Jesus literally just told his disciples that he was going to be captured and killed. I'm going to be taken into captivity and I will be killed. And what is the response of the disciples? Do they argue with Jesus and say, no, Lord, we need you. You can't let this happen. What would we ever do without you? Are they filled with remorse? Are they concerned about Jesus and ushering in the kingdom? None of that stuff. They respond by fighting with one another about which one of them is the greatest. And maybe you guys have had an experience like this where you've like told your kids how to behave and then they start arguing again. It's like, what, did, what just happened? And this is crazy to me. And what we're seeing here in this passage in Mark is the reality of what sin does to all of us. What it does to all of us is what makes it hard for us to say, God, your kingdom come and your will be done because sin causes all of us to be little self-sovereigns or little self-kings. For me and for the disciples in this passage, praying your kingdom come and your will be done is hard because what we really want is for our kingdoms to come and our wills to be done. We want to be the greatest. And I'm more like the disciples than in Mark chapter 9 than I would like to admit. Because I think to pray your kingdom come and your will be done is hard for me because I love to be in control. I want to be great. I, I love my own way. I want to be indulged and served. And I want to be right. And I, I don't mean to belabor this point, but let me belabor this point. Uh, I wonder how many of us are afraid to pray that God's will would be done in our lives because what if it doesn't fit with my desire for my kingdom? I wonder how many of us struggle with this call to prayer because what if God makes me do something that I don't want to do? What if I'm not made as great as I want to be? What if God's will for me is to go to Africa <laughs> or worse, Iowa? No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I just offended half of you. I'm sorry. But some of us fear that as soon as we say, God, your will be done, God, bring your kingdom, then our lives are over. And so the question for me this week has been, God, I want to honor you. So how do I pray this prayer joyfully? I know the truth. I know that we should pray your kingdom come and your will be done. But what causes me to want to pray this prayer with joy? What is the beauty of the truth here? Well, let me leave us with this one reality this morning as we seek to honor God and pray the way that Jesus taught us to. The worship team can come on up. Here it is. I believe that the answer to how do I pray this prayer joyfully 
comes from the very first two words of the Lord's Prayer. We can pray this prayer joyfully this morning because we are praying to our Father. This entire prayer hinges on the fact that we are praying to our Father. And when I ask for God's kingdom to come, and when I ask for God's will to be done, I am asking for the kingdom and the will of my Father who is in heaven. I am asking for the kingdom and the will of my Father whose love is measured by the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's something that I've been thinking a lot about this week as I think about God's kingdom and God's will. I'm a dad. I have three kids and I love them so much. So much. And admittedly, my father, my love as a father is imperfect, but here is the thing. I always have and I always will desire the best for my children. I'm sure a lot of you can relate. We just do. And I would dare say that all healthy fathers dream and even arrange to secure a happy and prosperous future for their kids. I'm I'm not even close to retirement age, and although I kind of feel like it, I'm trying to figure out already how to leave good things for my kids when I die. And any time that Julianne and I get time away from our kids on a date or whatever, and some of you can probably relate to this, we spend the whole time talking about our kids and their futures. I go to bed almost every single night thinking about my kids, hoping that they'll be okay, hoping that they have good friends, hoping that they love Jesus Christ, praying for them constantly. And I think it's fair to say that the mental focus of a caring mom or a caring dad is incredible. Maybe you can relate as a parent. And if one of our kids is struggling, it greatly affects us. And I think that I can say this truthfully. My father love for my kids, though imperfect, has only the best in mind for them, even when they don't feel like it's the best. I want what is best for my children, even if they think I'm disciplining them. Or hurting them. And I want you to hear this so clearly in light of all that we've just said. When we pray your kingdom come and your will be done, we are praying that the perfect, loving Father will do what he knows is best in our lives for us. It's key for us as we pray this prayer to understand that God is our Father in heaven. God isn't in heaven just waiting for you to say yes to him so that he can say to you, I got you, you little loser, and now I'm going to ruin your life. God is not on a mission to do the worst thing in the world to us. God's desire for you is good. Even if it doesn't always feel that way, it is Jesus said this to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I think that we miss it when we don't see that the love of God the Father, when we don't see the love of God the Father when we are praying for his kingdom and his will. He's making all things new. He is growing you. It's not always easy, but God's will is good. God didn't come to exercise his power for you to make your little kingdom work. God our Father sent his son Jesus to welcome me by grace to a much better kingdom than I could ever seek on my own. And it's God's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. 
So let me end it this way. No matter how counterintuitive it is, it is really true that real life is found only when God's kingdom comes and God's will is done. This morning, knowing that God the Father knows what is best for us and loves us perfectly, what we can do is we can joyfully pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven because He knows what we need. He offers us freedom from ourselves and He is calling us into something so much greater than we could ever quest for on our own. Let me pray for us. Father, Your kingdom come and Your will be done. We love You. And God, we know that You love us. Lord, this morning I pray that we would trust you. God, I pray that we would trust you as our Father in heaven who loves us so dearly and so deeply. And God, we know it's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So Father, we pray that your kingdom would come in Vermilion and in South Dakota and across the world and that your will would be done in our lives. And Father, we look so forward to you giving us what's better for us than what we can give ourselves. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.